All right, good morning, everybody. I am super, super thankful that you chose to be here this morning. So the summer is rounding out, right? Hey, uh, if you're in school, you got like 10 or 11 days until school starts. So allow me to just fill you with that knowledge. Parents, guess what? Only 10 or 11 days until school starts. So <laughs> that's pretty cool. Uh, my wife and I sent our girls off to school this past week, so we've already broken through that barrier. Good luck this upcoming couple of weeks. I wish you the best. Hey, so we are in this series called Unchanging God, and it's been a real privilege for me to be able to dig into this uh, because this idea that God is unchanging is just so helpful to us. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 22, long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, <clears throat> and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not the dead. That means we have a living God. The same God who spoke with Abraham and who spoke with Isaac and Jacob and Moses and the prophets, that very same God is the God that loves us and we have today, that we have the chance to worship. And through the series, we're kind of working through um, a Bible timeline. And this is what it's looked like. We started with the story of Adam and Eve um, at creation. And then last week, we talked about Moses delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. And this week, we're going to be looking at the actual kingdom of Israel. And then next week, as we round the series out and the summer out, we'll be looking at the time when the church actually started. And here's the big idea of this series. God has never and will never change. And that is such a comfort to our hearts. And so this week we're talking about this here. God is our unchanging promise keeper. You know, we say that God keeps his promises all the time. We talk about this in the music we sing and the little phrases that we have when we're looking for someone to encourage us. We say, you know, well, God keeps his promises. And this week as I've kind of been prepping through and over the past couple of months, I've kind of been plagued with this question what does it mean that God keeps his promises? What does that actually imply for us? Does it just mean that God's word is always true? Does it mean that if God made a specific statement about something, that that is going to come true? <clears throat> you know, does it mean that if you hear the voice of God in some way, you know, whether through prayer or whatever it might be, that that's going to come true? What does it mean that God keeps his promises? And so hopefully we'll be answering that question. And also, I want you to be thinking of this as we move forward. What promise do you need from God today? In what area of your life do you find yourself going, God, I really just want to know what you say about this. What's your heart on this? What's your heart in my marriage or with my health, with my kids, our jobs, you know, our other relationships. <clears throat> Where do you need a promise from God? And keep those things in mind as we move forward. And we're going to circle back around to that. But my goal today is that we understand both of those things. We have a way to move forward with them. So I want to show you this picture as we jump in because this guy's story is really cool and it's, it's kind of helpful to us. It's terrible, but it's helpful to us. Does anybody know who this guy here is? Anyone know who that is? Shout it out. Go ahead. Bernie Madoff. <clears throat> now, for those of you who are my age and younger, you might not have a great memory of Bernie Madoff, but for some of you, you're like, yeah, I know that guy. He may be one of the most infamous people that has been um, involved in U.S. finances ever. 
Um, Bernie Madoff founded his company in 1980, Madoff Investment Securities. And what he did in 1980 was he put together a scheme of ways that he could steal money from people. In other words, he ran the greatest Ponzi scheme that has ever existed. In fact, by the end of it, he ended up stealing more than $50 billion from his investors, with a B, $50 billion. And so what he would do, and this is how Ponzi schemes work, and after this service, what you can do is when someone says, how was church? You'll be like, I don't know, one of the young pastors taught us how to embezzle money. I'm not sure <laughs> what else it was about. <clears throat> what he would do is he would make a promise to initial investors, and he would say, I'm going to return a significant amount of this money. This money is going to grow so, so quickly. And so what he would then do is he would take money from new investors and pay off the older investors and make it look like they had made a ton of money. Well, they talk with all of their friends and the word gets out and more and more people want to invest. And that's where the scheming comes in because all these people are investing and he's paying out the old investors with the new. And over time, there's just so much money that he's able to take it all. In reality, there were not really even investments being made and he was just ripping people off. And finally, in 2008, when the financial crisis hit and we went into that recession, there was a lot of pressure. People wanted to cash out their investments with Bernie. And all of a sudden, um, he had to tell them, like, I don't have the money. He was investigated by the FBI, and he was sentenced to 150 years in prison, where he died, actually, in 2021. And my brother, who's a massive New York Mets fan, he told me between services that the, even the New York Mets had invested so heavily with him that they basically had no money to even recruit or to buy players over the next 10 years. He was huge with nonprofits. He was huge with big-name investors. All sorts of people trust him. He even served on the board of NASDAQ for for quite a while. And yet, all of those promises that he made to all of those people were absolutely worthless. Why? It's because promises come from character. Any promise you or I make, any promise anybody else makes, flows directly from our character. And it's interesting, and we kind of understand this instinctively. Uh, one day I, was, I went on a date with my middle daughter, Isabel, and we went to Buffalo Wild Wings. Well, Buffalo Wild Wings and Horseheads is right next to Sweet Frog. And of course, everybody loves Sweet Frog unless you're crazy. Um, so Sweet Frog is really good. And we had talked about it while we were eating. She was excited to pick out whatever frozen yogurt it was. And she knew the topping she was going to get. And we leave the restaurant <clears throat> and we walk over. And guess what restaurant isn't open the day that we were there? Sweet Frog. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me that I made this promise to her and we planned on it and now I'm not able to come through on that. And in her eyes, it makes total sense that there was a little bit of a ding in my trustworthiness as dad. Now, I did everything I could do to make it up to her. I took her to Sam's Club where we saved 95% on the cost of whatever we would have paid for a Sweet Frog. And it's probably better. Let's let it go. However, so we went there, I got her that, uh, the frozen yogurt from there, and it was good. But there's, you know, there's also been times in which I've offered a consequence to my kids that if you don't listen or if you do dot, 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 this is the consequence. Now, most of the time I follow through on those, even when it really hurts. But there have been times where I haven't. And I'm sure if you are a parent, there's been times where you haven't followed through on a consequence. 
And that does the same thing. It comes from our character. And what happens is when our word is broken, it kind of knocks down the authority that our promises have. This is the same is true in relationships. It's true when your employer may lie to you or may cheat you, or you feel the government does one thing or another, your church does one thing or another, wherever it is. Promises come from character. And it's also true that God's promises come from his character. And in fact, I think that the correlation is so true that every single promise that God makes comes directly out of a characteristic that he is. I don't think there's any exception in Scripture. And so what I want to do is, with that thought, I think that there's a story that really beautifully summarizes this idea. And in our Bible timeline, it's up here in the kingdom, which is where I said we were going earlier. And so before we get to the kingdom, I got to catch you up from where we were last week in the Exodus with Moses, all the way up through the time of King David. And so let me kind of fill you in on this whole gap from Moses all the way to King David. So Moses leads his people out of Egypt. God supernaturally delivers them, performs signs and wonders, um, just desolates even the religious culture of Egypt while bringing his people out. His people cry and complain again and again. They They don't have faith in God that he can bring them into the promised land, which God said, I will bring you here. They don't have that faith. And so God says, you know what? Nobody that's older than a child is gonna go into the promised land because you don't have faith in me. Even Moses disobeyed God and never even went into the promised land. He saw at a distance, but he never went in. Except for Joshua and Caleb, they had faith in the Lord. And Joshua ended up taking, um, as, as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, the older individuals died, and Joshua took the remnant of them, and they went into um, Israel, what, it, what would then be Israel. And God helped them conquer all of the enemies that stood in the way in there, and the 12 tribes basically took their various plots of land, and they went about and they did their thing. The only problem is, is that they severely disobeyed God to the point where God was forced to discipline them. And so to discipline them, he sent various nations from around them to persecute them. And eventually, every time, they would find themselves so in agony, sort of like they were in Egypt, that they would cry out to God, God, help us, help us. And God would send them what is called a judge. And the judge would come in, And they would perform, generally speaking, extraordinary acts on behalf of God and rescue the people from that persecution. The people would turn back to God. They would worship God until eventually that judge would die. And without, like, exception, the people fell back into adultery and to worshiping other gods, but in really, really bad ways, like sacrificing their children on fire to worship other gods type of bad not good stuff. And God just wouldn't stand for it. Until eventually there was a little boy born whose name was Samuel. And Samuel became a prophet and the final judge of Israel. And at one point in time in Samuel's ministry, the people come to him and say, Samuel, we don't want judges We want a king to rule over us. We want a king like the nations around us have a king so that we can follow that king and they can lead us. And Samuel says, do you realize that a king is going to put your young men in the army? He's going to take taxes from you. He's going to require things from you that are going to be frustrating to you. And the people say, we don't care. We want a king anyway. 
And so they bring up Saul to be king of Israel, and he's the very first king of Israel. Saul is tall, he's beautiful, he's strong, he's a warrior. The scriptures say that he stood an entire head and shoulders above every single other person. And I love Chuck Swindoll kind of brings this out. He says, that is how people choose a king, whoever looks good and sounds good and is strong and is powerful. But unfortunately, Saul miserably failed, and he disobeyed God. And so God said, I'm taking the kingdom from you. And he sent Samuel to anoint a young man who lived in the town of Bethlehem. He was the youngest son of a family out in a field, Nobody saw him, nobody knew about him, except for all the sheep that he took care of because he was a shepherd, and his name was David. And when God looked over all of Israel, he looked into that shepherd field, and he saw a man who loved him. And God would say of David that this, this youth is a man after my own heart. And so Samuel finds David and anoints him to be king. Now, he doesn't become king immediately. It's later on that Saul passes away and David becomes king. But immediately, we see the character of David and the faith that David has in God come to pass. This is arguably the most notable story in Scripture, the most famous story in Scripture, is David and Goliath. David was taking food to his brothers who were in the army, and he came upon this camp, and there was a literal giant of the Philistine army that was there mocking and humiliating the Hebrew people. And nobody wanted to go and fight him. But David rolls up and says, are you kidding me? We have an almighty God and you're scared of this giant? And so David goes down with just a sling and a stone and he hits Goliath in the head with that stone and he falls and he finishes him off with Goliath's own sword because he had faith in him. Now, this is a big deal. Um, a couple of years ago, the youth ministry, we put together um, basically like a large puzzle and put a life-size Goliath up on the wall. Check this out. That's how big Goliath would have been amongst everybody that was here. And I thought this was hilarious because when we took this picture, I said, hey, I want you all to act like you actually just saw this giant warrior. And here's some of the faces that they made that I thought were absolutely hilarious. Um, this is one of our uh, youth ministry leaders right now, Cody. I love his expression on his face. And these two are just absolutely priceless. Uh, it's probably what a lot of us would look like if Goliath walked out. Um, and just for scale, again, just to show you, this is our kids ministry director, Anne, standing next to Goliath. And that's me standing next to Goliath. And David was just a, a youth. He was a shepherd and he had faith in God. And so what we see is that story moves forward, and David does become king. So now David is king over Israel, and God had given him rest from all the enemies around him. And so he found himself in a season of rest. And so in this time of rest, David wanted to honor the Lord. It's easy to waste times in which life is going well. It's easy to dwindle away those moments when we're not having conflict, when the finances are okay, when we're happy with the job, when our home is fine. It's easy to just kind of become complacent in those times. But David said, I'm not wasting this time. And he went to the Lord, and, or really to the prophet Nathan, and Nathan went to the Lord and said, I want to build God a temple because he's in a tabernacle, basically a tent outside, but I want to build him a temple to live in. 
And then prophet Nathan says, go ahead and go do that. But then God appears to Nathan. And this is just extraordinary. Look at the promise that God makes to David. He said, Nathan, go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I've been with you wherever you've gone and I have destroyed all of your enemies before your eyes. Now, I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. And I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with a rod like any father would. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, who I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. And I think to myself, that's not half bad, David. You got like a that's a pretty big promise from God. And it's interesting as we break this promise down, because there are really two fulfillments of this promise that God made. Because he says some things in there where you're like, okay, that's pretty long term. Like, what is your, what's your plan here, God? Uh, the first thing that God says, something will happen now. And we see that because Solomon built his temple. This is just a rendition of maybe what Solomon's temple looked like. An extraordinary temple of God. David did everything he could do to set up his son, Solomon, for success. He got him gold, he got him silver, he got him bronze, he got him cedar, he got him everything he would need. I think he even gave him the outlines of what the temple would look like. And Solomon was willing to build this temple, and he did. And so God's word came true. You know, your descendant is going to build me a temple for my name. And that's really extraordinary. And... Solomon pretty severely disobeyed, but God wasn't willing to bail on him because he promised David, I will not take the throne from your family. But what God also says is something will happen later. And some of that promise that God made that sounds much more long-term, I believe David understood this for sure, but some of the prophets let us know as well, that really these things that would happen later are in reference to Christ. And we see this throughout scripture pretty frequently when God makes a promise that sometimes there's these two ways that it plays out. Something happens then, but there's a deeper meaning that's talking ahead to Christ. Jesus references this when he says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. And so all throughout the scripture, as we see these promises being made to people and these prophecies being made, we come to realize that many of them are about Jesus, the Messiah, who would come. We looked at this list of 100 Old Testament statements about Jesus eventually coming to be the Redeemer, how that's a theme where God promises a Redeemer, someone to make good out of evil, someone to restore what is broken or to renew. And then we looked at this list of a 
of 100 verses in the New Testament where Jesus said, or the apostles said, what Jesus did was enough. He came to totally, completely fulfill the law, which all pointed ahead to him. And we see that God made promises to Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and the prophets. God, was, God had um, spoken his word and made promises to all of these people many times. And what's interesting is that they all failed. Every one of these people would sin and would walk away from the Lord or would disobey the Lord or would not be pure to him or would one thing or another. And that is a bit of an image of our life, right? That we often sin and we fail and we fall and we stumble along. And yet there are promises that God makes us. The thing is that God always keeps his promises. And so even though those people would fail, in this instance, God promised to David, your descendant will be on the throne forever. And even though David would miserably fail later on in his life and come back to the Lord, but fail pretty bad, God doesn't break his promises. And so we see um, something really beautiful in David's response because David's response shows his heart, shows his understanding of God's promises, shows the sorts of promises that God makes. Listen to this. 2 Samuel 7 says this, Then David went in and sat before the Lord and prayed, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? He says, Already, God, why me? Why have you already brought me here? You've already blessed me with being the king. You've already given me this nation. Why? Like, what prompted you to do this? He says, and now, sovereign Lord, in addition to everything else, you speak of giving your servant a lasting dynasty. Do you deal with everyone this way, O sovereign Lord? What more can I say to you? You know what your servant is really like. He goes, God, my life is bare before you. You know what I'm like. You know my thoughts. You know my motivations. You know the skeletons in my closet. You know my relationships. You know everything. And yet you're still making me this promise. Sovereign Lord, because of your promise and according to your will, you have done all of these great things and have made them known to your servant. And now, O oh Lord God, I am your servant. Do as you have promised concerning me and my family. Confirm it as a promise that will last forever. And may your name be honored forever so that everyone will say, the Lord of heaven's armies is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David continue before you forever. Your words are truth and you have promised these good things to your servant. And now may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue before you forever. For you have spoken. And when you grant a blessing to your servant, O oh, sovereign Lord, it is an eternal blessing. David responds with worship and with expectancy. The very first thing he does is he proclaims the glory of God, the goodness of God, and the character of God. But he also, he also responds with expectancy. He says, you know, he doesn't say, oh, woe is me, I'm so, I'm so bad, I'm so sinful, I can't embrace this promise. And No, what he says is, God, God, because of your character, 
let it come to pass in my life. Let this happen. And if you break down some of what David says about God, as we just read, we see that David says that that God is sovereign, you're faithful, you're good, you're all-knowing, you're all-powerful, you are trustworthy, and you're worthy of worship. David says all of those things in his response to this promise God made. Because promises come from God's character. David knew it wasn't about David. This was about God. God just happened to give David a special promise. He said, David, from your family line, the Messiah is going to come. But it wasn't because of David. It was because God's character came into David's life in this way. And David understood that, which is why he worshiped God by declaring all of his attributes and who he was while embracing that promise. And the truth is, is that we are given a special promise as well. We are given special promises. And I asked you earlier to think, where in your life do you want to know what God's promise is to you? And I would say this, the very character of the almighty God of the universe himself is a unique promise that is given to you wherever you find yourself with whatever you're going through right now. Look at what scripture says, just some of the characteristics of God, that God is love, God is merciful, God is faithful, God is a provider, God is a protector, God is a guide, God is a redeemer, God is our savior, God is compassionate, God is good, God is just, God is personal. Look at some of these verses where the authors of scripture kind of claim these characteristics of God as promises for them. David wrote Psalm 103, and this is what he said, the Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. The Lord is like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. The apostle Paul said this, and we spoke about this a few weeks ago, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Paul also says this, and the same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. And so what promise do you need from God? And I have just kind of observed this in my own life and in many of your lives as well. We need different promises at different times. I sent out a message this week to a whole series of people, and I said, what do you think are the top three promises of God? And I got back a whole series of answers, which demonstrated the validity of the last response I received, which one of the individuals who texted me back said this, you know, I don't think there is a greatest promise from God. I believe that who God is provides me with a rich promise that meets me exactly where I'm at right now. Because sometimes we need to know that God is love, 
because we have been unloved, we have been abandoned, we have been abused, we've been hung out to dry. But sometimes we need to know that God is just because there's injustice in our life. There's, there is evil in the world around us. We see things that are wrong, and God promises to be just. And what we see is that in any area of our life with our marriages, with our children, with our sinfulness, right? God says, I am slow to get angry. I'm compassionate. I love you. I'm your father. What we see is that God's unique characteristics meet us where we are every single time. Look at this list. God is love, merciful, faithful, provider, protector, guide, redeemer, savior, compassionate, good. He's just and he's personal. The very character of God is a special promise to you right now. And he is an unchanging promise keeper. And so whether it is in a relationship that's tough, you know, whether you're trying to figure out what's your next step, school, about moving, am I going to be able to find a home, am I going to be able to find an apartment, do you have a big change coming in your life, are you dealing with a transition in life, are you dealing with conflict, financial stress and hardship, there's all sorts of different things that we go through, especially conflict with our kids can be really hard, right? But what God says is, bring it to me, and who I am will flood you with my promises. Now, to be sure, God's word is a promise to us. All of the, what we discover about God's character and his promises come from his word. Ultimately, that's the source. The Holy Spirit who inspired the scriptures feeds us this information, feeds us this truth, and we discover it through his word. We discover it through being involved here in worshiping him together as a group. We discover it while we pray by ourselves and with other people. We discover it in small groups of people that we can share our life with. All of these things highlight God. So, it's, it, so there is that. Like we do read of his promises, of his goodness, of all of those things in the scripture. But you don't need a chapter and a verse in scripture to address the particulars of your very unique scenario. What you need to know is that God is who he said he is. And that's a very special promise to you. He's good. He's merciful. He is compassionate. Just think about that for a moment. What if you were honest about something and you were met with just compassion? Wouldn't that be awesome? Well, that's God's promise to you. And so I, I want to take a moment to give us an opportunity to think about all of this, all of those ways we want to know God's promises, um, to think about our lives. We're going to do a celebration that I really enjoy, which is communion. We're going to have a chance right now. The worship team is going to come up, and they're going to play some music and give us an opportunity to think and to reflect and to pray. And what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate one of the promises of God, the fulfillment of all of the prophecies and all of the promises of a Messiah coming, like Jesus actually said. We're going to celebrate the death of Jesus, knowing that because his body was broken, because he was willing to go to the cross and stay on the cross for you and for me. We're able to have salvation. We're able to know him. We're able for all of this stuff, 
all of these good promises of God to be a reality in our heart. So I would like you to take just a minute to pray, to think about God's sacrifice for you on the cross, to just think all of this over, and then I'm going to pray and we're going to jump into um, remembering through communion this time of just thinking about what Jesus did for us, thinking about all of God's promises and who he is. So let's take a few moments of silence right now to just ready our hearts to celebrate communion together.